0: The Latter-day Lives Podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends, and welcome to Episode 201 of the Latter-day Lives Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Rapier. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. We've got such a fantastic show for you. Uh, My guest this week, Brandon Roberry, he is the CEO of Digital Health for Astro DM Healthcare. He is based out of Dubai, and we have a great conversation about not only his life, but life in Dubai and in the church in that part of the world. And I got to tell you, I was so impressed with Brandon and the spirit that he brings and especially the way he chose to answer um, our final question that we ask all of our guests. I was literally just in tears. His spirit is tremendous. He's such a brilliant guy, and knowing the pioneering work that he's doing out in that part of the world is absolutely awesome. You will love this conversation. And coming up this week in my latter-day life, hey, where are you from? It's all coming up. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's Conversation. And today, here on the Latter-day Lives podcast, my guest is the CEO for Digital Health with Aster DM Healthcare. He is out in Dubai, and we're going to hear all about his life, his career. Uh, Brandon Roberry. welcome to the show.
1: Sean, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. I look forward to it.
0: What a miraculous time we live in, that you're in Dubai. I'm in Lynn in Utah. Gene's sitting in with us from Utah, and we're able to talk in real time. It is amazing. What a time to be alive.
1: In real time and 11 hours difference, right? So yes. It's, uh, sun's down in one side of the world and sun's up in the other side, and uh, there you go. Yep.
0: Yeah, tell us what time it is there in, in, in Dubai right now.
1: Uh, right now it's 8 40 in the morning.
0: That is just incredible. So we have so many questions about uh, your life uh, in Dubai and how you ended up there. But let's start out by getting to know you. Tell us a little bit about where you're from, where you grew up.
1: Sure. Happy to do it. So uh, hard to know where I'm from anymore because we've moved around uh, (laughs) quite a bit. But in terms of my growing up, I, uh, I, I literally, well, I'll tell you this much. I was born on State Street in Orem.
0: Oh, wow. Uh, Okay.
1: When I say born on State Street, I mean literally born on State Street. Mom and dad didn't make it to uh, the hospital. Uh, It was right after my dad. He he had just graduated from college, was ready to start his first job teaching seminary uh, for the church. And uh, I believe it was Legrand Richards told him, don't get don't you dare get on the freeway, you know, until that baby's born, et cetera, et cetera. So my understanding is I was a little bit late and then I came super fast and dad (laughs) had the opportunity of delivering me. And uh, then we went to the hospital, I guess, after that, and everything else uh, worked out. And then we moved two weeks later.
0: No kidding. You were born on State Street in Orem, which uh, we yeah. have listeners listeners all around the world. You were born 10 minutes from my house in Linden. So, I mean, that's that's crazy. What a great story.
1: Yeah, uh, my dad was ready to start the first job, and then they went that. Then I, we we moved quickly. Uh, I don't remember it. We moved outside of the Ogden area for a couple of years when I was a little kid, I spent about uh, seven years or so outside of Idaho Falls where my dad taught seminary. He's from uh, Idaho Falls originally. And then where I really claim is growing up is I spent most of my uh, childhood in Denver, Colorado, uh, mm. outside in, in Aurora, with, if you know the, the Denver metro area where I went to elementary school, middle school, high school. Just loved it. Love Colorado. I'm a mountain kid. Um, I always look west and you can see those. I know Utah's the other side of that, so yeah. you can look to the side of the mountains. Uh, but that's who we were. Grew up in a in a great, obviously very strong LDS family. With dad being a church education system teacher, mom full time mom. They sacrificed a lot to get us seven kids uh, what we needed and uh, where we were going. And just just was a, a delight.
0: Seven kids, you know, and and you know, people don't go into the church education system to get wealthy. They go into <laughs> it for blessings and. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and there are a lot of blessings. I mean, it's it's a very fulfilling career and a competitive one. It is not easy to get uh, to get a job teaching in the CES system, but uh, that's a, that's a real sacrifice to, to try to raise a family that way.
1: and and my my parents were very committed to making sure that that mom could spend enough time and her full time with with the kids, and so dad would take on extra jobs as he could. So in the summers where he wasn't teaching as much, he did a number of things. Um, You know, there's stories from my childhood of dad, he would go in and work as a, as a janitor in the high school before switching to his suit.
0: Where where do you fall then in, in with all the kids?
1: I'm the second, second of seven. So older brother, and then uh, five after me, uh, we, uh, the, the first five of us, there were four boys, then three girls. In that order, the first five came in like five and a half, six years. And then there was a bit of time between between the final two. So uh, God bless my mother for all she put up with and and did. And uh, so I knew what it was like to run around with a bunch of little boys back in the time when that's what you did is you got shoved out the door. And you played outside as much as you could. Uh and then mom would had a bell or eventually a boat horn or something where the <laughs> roeberry honestly the boat horn, we were playing at a friend's house or something. Oh, the roeberry kids need to go home for dinner or whatever it was. Uh, so that was uh that was the joy. Fun time. Oh, Brandon, up, I love you know, it. Yeah. It was it was really fun. Mom and dad, we knew uh we knew loved us, right?
0: Were, were you really outdoorsy growing up? I've I've spent some time in a very much so. Yeah, and that's yeah you've got i mean similar to utah but uh maybe even more of an outdoor culture in in denver and the denver area so you're a, you're a hiker camper kind of a guy
1: a- absolutely i loved camping as a little kid i don't think we could go enough um that's that's how we grew up we'd both go as a family or just with dad or on the father and sons camp out or big scouter, obviously growing up too, uh, Cub Scouts, Boy Scouts, you know, all the boys got their Eagles, that that kind of a family, right? That's, that's what we did, really enjoyed it. Uh, given the, um, let's say financial resources that uh, have as a seminary teacher, and institute guy, camping was essentially our vacation, right? That, that's the kind of stuff we did. And so the investments were in tents and or at one point we got a pop-up tent trailer, if you remember those, or if you ever sure. have one and Pulled that behind the station wagon and uh, went a couple of places. So we would go to the mountains. That was what we did.
0: So I'm I'm assuming we're pretty close at age, somewhat close at age anyway. But uh did you did you have the tail gunner seat in the station wagon? Where you if sat you, If facing you mean backwards? the one where
1: you sat facing backwards, we absolutely <laughs> had the tailgunner <laughs> seat, if you want to call it that. And and uh sawn seat belts sometimes as well. So you could sort of jump back and forth over the uh over the little hump that was there, and uh, when you get tired of one, or you're making faces or counting license plates at the the cars coming in back of you and playing all the little goofy highway games. So when we moved, my my father's parents uh, were from Idaho Falls. That's where he grew up, and so we'd go back and see grandma once uh, once a year back when we moved from Denver. And many a time in that station wagon, and in we we bought a VW bus, right? One of those old VW buses so spent plenty of time in there by the way those things don't have heaters or air conditioners or anything and plenty of funny stories with regards to what we did to <laughs> try and stay alive during those trips
0: <laughs> my family also went straight from a station wagon to a vw bus so i have yeah. some of those sweet memories as well those were good times
1: good uh, times with the engine in the back right yes
0: mm. yes i owned i've owned a couple of them the air cooled beauty that's awesome. You <laughs> um, so you get into your teenage years. Uh, were you? Did you stay active in the church? Did you ever go through a rebellious time?
1: Not so much. No, no, I was uh, pretty focused in the church. We were a very dedicated, you know, church family. Uh, all the kids stayed very active all through other teenagers and still are today. Fortunately, all of us serve full-time missions, the girls included, All around the world. So it's kind of fun that that we all got to go very, very different places, but yet have somewhat of a similar experience. Um, You uh, in the Roberry family, you were you were put in front of people a lot. Right. So my dad, aside from being just an institute and seminary guy, was also got to be a reserve chaplain in the Air Force. And So that gave us opportunities to do a lot of interfaith work. And he did a lot of that. So we would go to many of our other Christian denomination friends. We went to the other, uh, the only Muslim mosque that was there in in Denver and a lot of the places. And he would bring his kids along when he's asked to talk. And sometimes they would say, hey, I want to hear from your kids. And he was not shy about putting us on the spot uh, at whatever age we might happen to be at in order to make it happen. And you learn from pretty young, you better be ready to to say something to those who are curious about uh, who we are and what we stand for.
0: Oh, I love it. You finished high school. What did you do between high school and mission?
1: Uh, went to college. So went to, I, I decided to go to Rick's instead of BYU because at the time I was a big singer and I thought, Hey, it's going to be easier to get into the top choir at a two year, co- what was then a two year college, right? Than straight BYU, which is uber competitive when it comes to music. Uh, and, uh, and that was a great thing. I, I loved going to Rexburg. Uh, so I spent a year there. Then I got called to the uh, former, con- the countries of the former Yugoslavia was was mm. the call that came. And I'm like, okay, what's that? It was under at the time, it was under the Austria-Vienna mission. So our mission home was in Austria-Vienna. But I got called once, I, I did go to the MTC, uh, trying to learn Serbo-Croatian. But when I, when we flew over to Austria, uh, met with the mission president and he said, oh, the robbery I'd like you to serve in the country of Slovenia for the next couple of years. And I said, great. Uh, where's that? And he said, you, you have a train to catch in a couple of hours. Just don't get off until you get to the end. And I think someone will be there to meet you uh, because the countries down there. There's Slovenia, there's Croatia. Back then there was Serbia a little bit, but there were some conflicts because this is back when there were, was a war going on right. in the early 90s. Um, and so, uh, there were only 12 of us missionaries in the country and, uh, we had to, we got to learn the language by ourselves with, with, uh, just the help of, uh, companions that didn't know much more than we did. So it was a, it was a great time though. Really enjoyed it.
0: You were in an area where there has been conflict for a long time. There has yeah, been a yeah, lot and, and, of geopolitical unrest.
1: And there was conflict while we were there too. Um, not specifically in Slovenia, where we were. I mean, It was a quite a safe place. It was really an hour south of where we were at a little bit more where the kind of the Serbs and the Croats were were fighting. This is 1993, 1994. In fact, quick story about that. I was I was in the city of Kran, Slovenia, with my companion. We walked into we had become friends with a Serbian family who was living in a, in a big what they call a bloke there, which a bloke is a big sort of communist style um, building made out of cement. And we walk into their little apartment and they had the TV on and live on CNN was the U S bombing Beograd, right? So Beograd, the capital city of Serbia, a Serbian family, two American young men walking 19 years old,
0: walking oh into gosh. the Serbian
1: family, watching us bomb their capital. And at first we're like, Whoa, is, you know, is this okay? And not only was it okay, um, they were incredibly grateful for what we were trying to do to essentially. Uh, Save a lot of other people, so it uh, became a, a good thing. But right. it's, it's surreal, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I served in Chile. I served internationally as well, and you know, it's it's eye opening, but eye opening differently than what what you viewed. I mean, it must have given you a, a a quick awareness as to what the world is really like. I mean, all that around just a few short years earlier, there was an entire country in Yugoslavia near you. That no longer existed was just gone completely, and absorbed. that's right.
1: That's I mean, right. That, so, well, the, that was recent. To be fair, the countries of Yugoslavia were smashed together, essentially, right, given to the communists, as it were, and then they they basically couldn't break apart fast enough once they were "quote unquote" freed. So the Iron Curtain, as it were, fell just before the country of Slovenia was essentially open to the teaching of the gospel in. 1990 the end of 1992 was really when the first missionaries came in and I came in in 1993 so we were kind of that first wave pre anything being translated right <laughs> anything like that so that the Book of Mormon was was more than a decade away uh we came in and there were we had five hymns uh that uh, had we had we had translated and we sang those five hymns every single Sunday so we got really good at those and then I'm sure they they retranslated them after uh, we left in correctly uh, this time. We did uh, have some translations of a few of the, you know, the tracks of Joseph Smith story or things. So when we were serving, we didn't, we would carry, you know, a Russian book of Mormon, a, a, uh, an English book of Mormon, and maybe one other, a German book of Mormon, and make sure that whatever language the people spoke that was close enough, that's what they would read from. We would follow along in English and when they got done reading in whatever language they were going through, we'd say, did it say something like this? And they'd say their yes or no. And then we'd start to have those conversations.
0: So tell us about church at the time in Slovenia. What, what did a Sunday look like? <laughs>
1: the, the Sunday looked like uh, the fir- first area I went to, little city of Kran, was just me and my companion. And we rented what they call a Kranuskupnost, which is just a, a meeting place. So think of maybe the size of somebody's living room. Uh, and we went there with um, half the time there would be nobody there, and half the time there might be one family or a couple of people. So it, it was never much larger than five or six. Uh, when when I did get transferred down to the capital city of Ljubljana, there were a few more, but you know, maybe uh, in the area of fifteen.
0: Wow, like that. This is true pioneer work, Brandon. I mean, this is. It's a big Not for
1: not for me, but for for them. Right. For the Slovenes who who were uh, happy and willing to sacrifice and and really build the church where it was. So we were just the missionaries here to support them. The very first member of the church in Slovenia, as is the case in many countries, was actually studying as a student in Norway and came across the missionaries there and uh, knew the gospel was true and then came back. Taught his then girlfriend. She was baptized, etc. And they were the first members in the country. Uh, there was a family in that city of Kron who we became very tight with as well. Uh, who, who, you know, they, bam, they were the first full members, meaning mom, dad, and a few kids who joined the church together. But it's it it was that kind of a place and a mission. And it's still Europe and Eastern Europe. It's not a place where the church has grown tremendously. By any means, I mean there's are still it, it grows slowly, slowly. Uh, but uh, a great place to learn and grow and, and get um, uh, a solid foundation in the gospel. But also a place where typically when people latch onto the gospel and and their their lives change for the better and they get connections in other places, they often want to go to those other places. So many of them have immigrated to America. Either you know mm. they might have gotten married to an American or they found better opportunities elsewhere in their lives. Uh, and and they go there too. So, you know, they come back and forth. That kind of a country.
0: What an amazing experience, Brandon. This is uh, wow, fascinating.
1: But but I will tell you one other thing. It is a fairy tale land. It is one of the last burges. if you have to go to Slovenia, it, the Alps come down into Slovenia and stop. Some of the most beautiful mountains, rivers, valleys you've ever pictured in your life are part of that little tiny country and I'm uh, sure glad it got to be there.
0: That's beautiful. Come home from your mission, what came next?
1: Um, Well, a few days before my mission, my parents had moved from Denver, Colorado to Las Vegas. So my dad became the institute director at UNLV and uh, I drove the moving truck down with my mom, down to Vegas, uh, went to church and then went to the MTC the next day. So coming back to Nevada, of course I don't know anybody there. I had spent uh, all of my savings uh, paying for the mission. And so I, I couldn't go right back to college, had to spend some time earning enough money to go back to school. So I got a couple of jobs um, and and work there. And it was a good thing I did because that's when I met my uh, wife there. And uh, she she actually knew and met my family beforehand. I The joke is she she sort of Loved my father and mother first and just wanted to be part of the family and so she picked whoever was available <laughs> to go from there she's got a funny story about picking me out in a picture at one point because she came in and said you know I'm I'm done with boys right they're all stupid after you know number of dates etc cetera, etc cetera. and my dad said all right you know I have four sons why don't you choose one of them I, sort of joking I'm sure and she pointed to me and said I'll take him <laughs> and I was on my mission of course and I so Uh, She had to wait for a year for me to get home. Now, uh, my uh, my parents were very good about sort of staying out of that, but also saying, hey, you know, these uh, these are the type of young ladies who are great. And of course, my dad, being an institute director, knew all of the young single adults in the area and uh, knew all about my wife, uh, Kim. And uh, when we started dating, he was uh, super happy about it.
0: So his his approval really meant something. I mean, he knew the he knew the lay of the land
1: he knew her very well and uh and uh, she knew them so i i didn't know how close my family was until i brought her home on a date and she came she walked into the house and her and my mom just started la, la 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 talking together i'm like hold on this is a trap what's going on here uh found out later how that was but it's yeah it's beautiful it was a it was a great thing and then so i got home and then i earned enough money for about 6 months went back to ricks college for the January through April semester after April came back and got, got a job um, in Las Vegas for the summer. And that's when we got engaged and got married at the end of the summer.
0: So we, we have uh, some younger listeners who are so confused as to why this guy Rick was running a college. You may know <laughs> it as BYU-Idaho. Uh, those mm-hmm. of us of a certain age know it as Rick's. I still call it Rick's, but... Uh, uh, me too. Did, did you know what you wanted to study? When you were at Ricks,
1: not exactly. So I went. I went there as a uh, performing arts major, actually, as a singer. So I was a big singer in high school. My mom got me into singing when I was little. It was a joy. Absolutely loved doing it. So I entered as a music major to begin with. But when I, came, you know, on my mission, uh, kind of discovered that if I if I didn't want to teach music or be a professor of music, probably doesn't make sense to get a degree. In that because all I, I like to perform. I like to sing. It's it's fun. And so switched uh, then uh, to something that could get me where I wanted to go. I knew I wanted to go to graduate school, probably in business or leadership or something like that. So switched majors at the time, essentially to, to make that happen. And then after my wife and I got married, we transferred to Brigham Young University in Provo. So I went to BYU already married, uh, which is strange. Normally, you got to go to BYU first to to, uh, to get married. And it's then, not a bad uh, system. The last couple years. Not a bad system. I was fortunate. Yeah. Uh, Kim had gone through school very quickly. She was a special education teacher. She started teaching in Orem right as we started. So I was a sophomore and when you get married, you get, you get pretty focused with, Oh my gosh, we, you know, family's coming. We're going to have to do it. So I just went year round as many credits as possible. Uh, so we could get on with the life and good thing we did. Cause 18 months later, the first child was born and, uh, just before I graduated, and then more came along the way.
0: Yeah, that's moving pretty fast. How long were you in uh, Provo?
1: We were in Provo for um, four years. Yeah, We lived in a a little basement apartment, right, of an old lady who was was kind to us and and let us, uh, at first, it wasn't supposed to have children, but then she kind of fell in love with us and our kids, so she allowed us to have our first son there, and then Daughter came after that, and uh, and she was fine with that as well. So it was, a, it was a blessing.
0: So you graduate from BYU. Where'd you go from there?
1: Uh, graduated undergrad BYU. I uh, was going to go to MBA school. Uh, looked into a number of schools. Didn't want to go to the same school for both. And so looked in a number of schools. But after talking uh, with a range of people in the industry as well as professors, what did I want to get into was studying leadership and then get into industry as well. I came across the Masters of Organizational Behavior Program. At BYU, which is ranked in the top three really in the world, but certainly in the nation said, well, why am I going to somewhere else? And we talked about that. I had started um, some little companies, even in undergraduate school, mainly out of necessity to pay the bills and put diapers on the kids. Um, And uh, they fortunate for me, they counted that as good work experience. So I went to the Marriott School for graduate school and I graduated two years later. And then after that, I started in earnest uh, in industry.
0: Wow. What was your uh, first job out of BYU? Uh,
1: I did an internship with a consulting firm uh, first, and then my first job, after that was really an internship, and then a little bit after that. But then the first job out of, out of that, we moved to Phoenix, Arizona. I took a job with Honeywell um, in their engines and systems area. So this is aerospace. I was an organization design consultant, is what they wow, call it. Wow, that's
0: a big title, Brandon.
1: No, not really. I was uh, I was just the young guy who came on and helped him organize the charts, uh, go in and do kind of SWAT team projects for six or eight weeks. Why are we struggling in this area? The company helped come up with solutions, implement those solutions, move on to the next one. Uh, what I what I learned is <clears throat> during the internship with the consulting firm, I love that kind of work, right? Management consulting mm. was great, really loved it, worked my head off. However, it's it was also, at least at the time, you really had to fly your life away. I mean, you were on planes at least Monday through Thursday, if not Monday through Friday. And I knew yeah. that's not how I, I wanted to live with, with my family, but I love the work. So I found larger organizations who actually have these strategy or management consulting firms basically in-house. Where you could do the kind of work, but you're still working, you know, at the same rough location every day, which was a little more conducive to the family, and so got the opportunity to do it, and and uh, haven't looked back.
0: That's great, and and for people who got excited that you were working with SWAT, that's an acronym for Strength, Weakness, Opportunity, and Threat, not the SWAT teams kicking down doors. Not quite no. as exciting, but still pretty exciting, you know It's pretty
1: exciting, but we have no no firearms involved. Yes, uh, no ammunition aside from our great analysis, or yeah, something it's like
0: a little, a little business term we use, uh, uh, yeah. SWOT analysis. But uh, so how long were you in Phoenix?
1: Not long, just a year. yeah, uh, uh, so what what you know, as I learned, you know maybe being a bit naive when you were younger when you get into big uh, corporate America or corporate anything, Things changed and things happened. General Electric was supposed to acquire Honeywell at the time. That was all going through. The European Union said, "Mm, we don't want you to do that. And so it didn't happen. 15,000 people got laid off the next month. My entire group was one of them. Wow. Um, I kind of had the opportunity to go somewhere else in the country, but being a bit young and naive and headstrong, I was like, well, you know what? If If you're not Thinking about the talent in this area, I'm not sure I want to be part of that type of an organization anymore. Looking back on it, I'm not sure that was the wisest of choices, but <laughs> uh, but I I fortunately got an opportunity at Hallmark Cards in Kansas City. Literally, right away, uh, we moved right away and moved the family to Kansas City. So I was only in Arizona for a year, then spent four and a half uh, years in Kansas. Again, loved that area of uh, of the place. We had. Uh, we had two children that were born there. So we, we added one. Sorry, we added one in Phoenix. Then we added two more in the Kansas City area.
0: And some of the best barbecue in the world. Indeed, Kansas it City. is. And
1: yeah. I had to argue with my brother, who's who's living in Louisiana at the time, you know, about that. But uh, hopefully we won.
0: Yeah. Now, Kansas City, I'll, I'll, I'll vouch for Kansas City barbecue any day. Uh, working for Hallmark sounds awesome. It sounds like it would just be this idyllic thing of people sitting and writing cards. How was the Hallmark experience?
1: Yeah, Hallmark was, experience was great. It, it it is a wonderful company, a very a very family run company. It's a private organization. A lot of people might not know that, but the yeah, Hall yeah. family, the Hall family, really set up its entire infrastructure for the company around Kansas City. I was the first company I had been a part of that was so focused on the local geography and really helping it out. Um, in fact, there's a place in Kansas City called Crown Center where where the whole family and Hallmark Cards really helped to redevelop, redeve- revitalize that entire area. And they set up their manufacturing and distribution surrounding the, the highway system around Kansas City for that very reason. It was pretty fascinating. Again, there I was an organization development or design consultant, uh, had a good time working with them as well. And that's where I kind of made a change in where I wanted to go with my career. I wanted to get into more of the uh, more sort of corporate strategy and innovation, because I re- I got involved in a number of projects, both at Honeywell and Hallmark. With regards to that, it just became a love of mine and wanted to do that. And unfortunately, there wasn't going to be the opportunity at Hallmark. Uh, and And I talked with my management about that, and they were super supportive. Again, I I, I uh, they didn't have those opportunities, but they said, we'll support you in what you want to do. I actually went Sort of part time for a while, where I was figuring out what I wanted to do, and then I got other opportunities as we moved on from there.
0: Yeah. So where'd you go from Kansas City?
1: We went to Richmond, Virginia. Mm. Went and worked as uh, I got a job as a director of innovation in the consumer uh, electronics industry retail for Circuit City. That was the first, let's say, three years of that. I had we had a great time. We were building. We had launched a number of new. Uh, companies for the company. And then this little thing called 2008 came around in 2009. And for those of you younger ones, you may want to read up on uh, the financial crisis of 2008 and nine and what happened and how they sort of the sky was falling and uh, circuit city, like tens of thousands of other companies got caught up in not having enough, you know, on one side and uh, too much on the other. And the company went out of business and 46,000 employees one day, didn't have a job at the other end for that. And I was, I was part of that. Now we added, as far as a family standpoint, we added another two children uh, in Richmond. And so that came to seven, I guess we, we, we weren't allowed to have more than two kids per state, uh, but that's just <laughs> how it came. That's when I got into being a, you know, a football coach and a basketball coach and a soccer coach, because the kids were coming of those ages. And if you want your kids to have a good experience, you often have to make it happen. Seven Yourself with kids. Would, wow. The, the local YMCA or some, you know, competitive soccer leagues that the kids got into, but uh, just having that family involvement was, uh, was fantastic. And then, I, so I had to figure out what to do after that, uh, started consulting a bit, had some opportunities there. And then we moved to Minnesota after that. I took a job with United Health Group, uh, heading up their innovation function as well.
0: So you growing up moved around a bit, you, you know, you, you had a few, a little bit years, yeah not a ton, but how was your wife with all these moves, with moving around the country so much?
1: Uh, she was she was okay. I mean, that, again, that wasn't the plan. She's actually a very adventurous and outgoing person <clears throat> by nature. Throughout all of this, we made sure that uh, that the kids knew that the reason we do all this is to support um, them yeah, and, uh, and to support mom and so she can focus on the most important work of the family. And what dad does is what dad has to do. Um, so mom can do the really important stuff. Yeah. Six years in Minnesota, worked at uh, United Health Group. Uh, also, that's when I got into kind of health tech investing and advising, and sitting on some of these smaller uh, company boards of directors. Also had a chance to work with the Mayo Clinic while I was there as well uh, for a little per- for a small period of time. And then at the time, uh, years before we made the move, there's this uh, sovereign wealth fund in Abu Dhabi called the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority. And uh, what a sovereign wealth fund is, for those who may not know, is there's countries who have excess revenues that they need to put into large investment funds so that they can maintain those funds and also grow them over time. And in the United Arab Emirates, they obviously have a lot of oil and excess oil revenue that they had for time that they put it into these places. Norway would be another good example of that in some other countries. They were looking for someone like me to come on and help them move both in the organizational area and the strategy area. And at first, I. Um, years before that the, the the kind of pitch to me while i was sort of heading up innovation at united health group didn't quite wasn't quite convincing enough uh, but over the years they would call me back about once a year and then um, it it made sense for us and our family we we knew my wife and i knew we wanted to get the kids overseas if we ever had the opportunity just to help expose them to what it was really like outside of america outside of all the, the kind of uh, opportunities that we have and. No better place, I think, to do that than uh, than the UAE. So in 2016, we made the move with six of our seven children because one had graduated from high school and uh, dove in headfirst. In fact, I think my wife almost drugged me there. She was more excited to move there than I think anybody in the family and uh, really get into what life was like there. And it has it has been an absolute joy. We believe we were uh, we were led to be there and uh, we have enjoyed it ever since.
0: So you get to the UAE. Um, what was the what was the biggest culture shock, going from from the states to the UAE? Uh,
1: the the biggest thing is probably just the diversities of people that are here. So in the UAE, uh, close to ninety percent—that's nine zero, 9-0, percent of people are not from here, meaning they're expatriates. Meaning they are here working, and they are not res- they are residents here, but they're they're not citizens. And so they will leave at some period of time. And so you get a chance to be around and work with and go to church with and serve in the community with everybody in the world, right? Lots of Southeast Asians, Uh, the Indian population from from India is the largest population here. Second largest would be folks from Pakistan, folks from the Philippines, right? Mm. All over the world. Uh, so you get that kind of rich diversity. So I wouldn't call that a shock, but just a joy to be like, wow, you get really good at understanding accents because English is still the major spoken language, but you've got it coming from around the world. One of the shockers to me was actually how, how non-different some of it was, right? You move overseas and you think it's going to be so different, but the United Arab Emirates is an incredibly modern place, lots right. of skyscrapers. Mall more malls than than you could want, more shopping than you could want, all those sort of modern conveniences. but still, some of the processes and things are 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 sort of before my lifetime in terms of how they're done. so uh, and, and and the cultures of different people kind of smashing together makes that an interesting experience. I think those with who are a little more adventurous, who don't want to create their old country back where they are now, will have a great time in a place like Abu Dhabi and Dubai if they don't wanna, you know, I'm gonna set up a little America here because I want it to be just like America. That's kind of the wrong approach. And fortunately I have a fairly adventurous family that was sort of very happy to uh, get a new experience uh, in, in the UAE. So we have really loved living in Abu Dhabi. We moved to Dubai uh, more recently uh, with this change, but uh, the the church in Abu Dhabi and Dubai is is stronger than I would have known. Um, we actually have a church building with our name on it in Abu Dhabi. Really? I didn't know that. I
0: yeah. did not know okay. that either.
1: As the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints on the outside was built in 2013, uh, they're, they, they're a very uh, tolerant community to uh, other faiths. We were very involved in the interfaith community here. Uh, and so we got to attend a, a building. Now, it's not going to look like any of the buildings you see in the United States, uh, but it's it's a three-story building with a the chapel, kind of right as you enter on the bottom, <clears throat> various offices and a you know, primary-ish room and relief society room in the middle, and then the top floor has a sort of a small cultural hall slash gymnasium and, and a few other other things up there. But uh, that was a boon to uh, I think the church here and help us grow. the the There uh, the wards are strong and large. When we in Abu Dhabi, um, I got to serve there in the bishopric pretty much the entire time while I was there. And, uh, you know, the normal uh, church would be 300 to 365. I think it was when we left pre-COVID. And then the attendance was, you know, upper 200s. Amazing. A lot of people and a lot of people joining the church, which, uh, again, being in the Middle East, that's something where we we don't proselyte. We have an agreement um, with the the government and others here that, uh, that that's not what we do. But if people want to come to church and they're Christian or they're, you know, uh, of another faith, then they're welcome to come in and worship with us. And and if they are interested, they can learn about the gospel as well. And that's exactly what happens, particularly with a lot of our African brothers and sisters, a lot of our Southeast Asian brothers and sisters. When they come in uh, looking for something, then they come back the next week with five of their friends. Uh, That becomes a ward. Rallying point where you get to help to teach the gospel where you have zero full time missionaries.
0: What an amazing time, and you know what an amazing way to proselyte. You know without proselyting. You know to proselyte within yeah. our walls. You know for people yep. to come into the church. Uh, what is like day to day wise? What is different about the church? Um, and one of the things we talked about is it's Thursday night in Utah. Uh, you said recently that would have made it almost the Sabbath, uh, but but recently that changed. Talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, so throughout, throughout the Middle East, at least for the last number of years, uh, the, the weekend is Friday, Saturday, not Saturday, Sunday. So Friday being the holy day for our, our Muslim brothers and sisters. And so our, our Sabbath day that we celebrate would be on Fridays. And then you have a kind of a normal Saturday, as it were, after that. Now, you get pretty used to having church on, on Fridays and then Saturday, that wasn't so strange. The stranger thing is just switch your weekend around to have the Sabbath the first day and then Saturday, the second day, because what does that mean for going camping in the desert, right? Or something like that. That means, well, when do you do that? Do you go Thursday night to Friday? Oh, I can't do that. If you go on Friday night, that means it's Sabbath. Um, so you got to kind of rejigger <clears throat> that around. But again, we got, we got very used to it uh, over time So that was one of the differences. Now, the United Arab Emirates, literally just a month ago, decided to change its weekend to Saturday, Sunday. So for the first time in any Middle Eastern country, um, starting this last month, it's now been Saturday, Sunday. There is a prayer time on Fridays that is still maintained. So we still work on Fridays. And then right in the middle of Friday, there's a few hour window where Muslims typically go to the mosque to pray and spend that time doing it. Some of them will then come back to work after that. Some of them will have the rest of the day off. It just depends on on where you're going. (laughs) The other differences in church wise, depending on where you've gone to church in your life, is the uh, rich, wonderful differences in people that come to the ward. So there are in, in our ward in Abu Dhabi, by last count, there were 28 nationalities that came to church with us. Um, Here in Dubai, I haven't counted quite yet, but it's uh, roughly about the same. And so you you get a lot of plenty of Western expats right from America, Canada, Europe as well. You have uh, lots of African brothers and sisters. You get some from Asia. And we have many, many, many Filipinos. Um, Oh, I didn't know that. in, In fact, in every major Middle Eastern city, there's typically a Tagalog speaking or Filipino ward. Because there are so many, um, and you know, to be culturally sensitive, et cetera. And it vacillates sometimes in the church, of course, of having language specific wards or geographic specific wards. And so right when we moved here, they changed it from just being geographic specific to having an kind of an English expat ward and a Tagalog-speaking Filipino ward in Abu Dhabi, in Dubai, in in the country of Qatar, for example. It's the same. Um, And just that that has been one of the greatest things for my family is that interaction with all of those different types of people. Uh, We try to make our home here welcoming, inviting, and there's many other members of the church are even greater examples of that where they're having people over, they're getting them involved. And I think that's why they see such success in those who want to understand what living a gospel-centered life is like, because it's not just for the hour or two that you might be at church that that happens, is they see them in real life, with their families and what they do. And for many people around the world, they've kind of never experienced something like this. We take it for, I mean, from where I'm from, we take that for granted because that might be the standard from a seminary teacher, dad's standpoint. Um, But from the vast majority of people we run into here, that's not where they come from. And seeing Hmm. that and then them embracing that and then making the changes, uh, that's phenomenal.
0: The people you work with, um, the church, while the church is strong, it's still very much a minority in, you know, where you're living. Um, Absolutely. Like a a tiny minority. And how many employees does your company have?
1: Our company has 22,000 employees. And when I joined the company um, in May, I believe I am the only member of the church. (laughs) And I find that fantastic. Right. It is actually marvelous. About about 85% of our, and I'm using rough numbers here, of our employees are Indian. Mm. Uh, we've got we're across every country in the Middle East, pretty much, as well as a lot of employees in India as well. And so I get the opportunity to learn much more about India. I get really good at Indian accents now which has just been awesome. I've, I've learned a ton and have much, much, much more to learn about the, the very, again, India, 1.2, 1.3 billion people. Many Americas can fit into that. And they are just as uh, different and diverse <clears throat> as different countries, uh, just because they happen to come from one. So we have 22,000. I will mm-hmm. tell you on the other point around the church, in Abu Dhabi, Abu Dhabi, most people may not know that it takes up most of the land mass of the country. And so the joke was when, <clears throat> when I got to serve uh, as the bishop in Abu Dhabi, was our our ward was uh, sixty five thousand square kilometers, um, and now most of those kilometers are sand.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, uh, most right. People
1: okay. Don't live in the sand, uh. right? <laughs> Fair enough. But it is it is the entire city, the city of one point two to two million people. Just one English speaking ward. That's Dubai one ward. is ward. Yeah, that's one ward. Uh, Dubai is about twice to three times that size. Again, in Dubai, you've got an English-speaking ward in Dubai, a Tagalog-speaking ward in Dubai, and then one <clears throat> that comes down from the areas of the northern Emirates, from Sharjah and other places as well.
0: So, in my business travels, I'm always surprised when people will bring up, "Hey, you're a Mormon, or you're a Latter-day Saint, or whatever," sure. and, and it catches me off guard. It surprises me, like. How did you know that, you know? And some somehow they've they found out they've known. As you are working your circles, here you are the CEO of a massive organization. Has anyone brought this up? Has, has the people you work with, have, have they brought this up at all?
1: Uh, not so much. But to be fair, when I started with the Sovereign Wealth Fund in Abu Dhabi, yes, because there had been some other folks in, a, in that Sovereign Wealth Fund that were members of the church and were well-respected, had done great work. So it was... It was a, a kind of not feather in my cap, but they're like, oh, you're you're one of those guys. Okay, great. You know, We know what to expect and, and who we are. Having shifted now, very different experience. So with the Sovereign Wealth Fund, worked with a lot of Emirati nationals, worked with a lot of very high profile uh, folks in the community and around the globe. I mean, with the level of resources, you're talking hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars being invested around the world. <clears throat> you kind of get access to uh, whatever you want shifting now to a company that's just focused in this region of the world, primarily Indian based, but here based here in Dubai, it's a very different experience. Don't work with nearly as many nationals or Emiratis and the people we serve are also our clients, customers, patients are also many folks from India, from Pakistan, from Europe, from <clears throat> other places as well. And also to clarify with Astro healthcare, I'm the CEO for digital health. So what does that mean? That means all of the, the, the apps, right? The, the platforms, the technology that's being stood up to help you get the care that you need. We have a few other CEOs in the company that run other operations. For example, the hospitals and clinics, uh, the, the, all of the great things that happen in India as well. So we have hospitals, we have clinics and we have pharmacies and it is growing tremendously fast right now. In fact, we, um, We almost stand up a new location nearly every day in the last year. And our digital network and platform is growing uh, nearly as fast, we're in the early stages of kind of the digital um, realm of that. And frankly, this area of the world is in that as well. What what we're developing here would not be new news for Americans, uh, but it is new news to, to parts of this side of the world. And we're just trying to give people affordable, accessible, uh, healthcare access, which I, uh, which which really you can't even almost fathom. Uh, let's put it that way in America, given where healthcare has gone and the expense and things are into that on this side of the planet, and how uh, Aster has been evolving. They can still do that, and so that's our that's our mission and that's our goal. And uh, I'm very happy that I, I just get to be a part of it.
0: How exciting to be on the technology side of it and to be able to to run that part of things.
1: Yeah, and that's what I'm finding, you know, we're hiring a lot of people right now. And there's other places they can, if they want to be a, you know, full tech stack engineer or a digital product manager or something like that, there are many 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 places they can go and there are many places that can pay them more than we can, or they get other benefits out of that. You know, we're not, we're not Google and Facebook and Amazon. We're a healthcare company. But what I'm finding is the one thing that, that of the people who join us have in common is some sort of a mission driven part about them where they want to bring their great skills and talents and be able to tell their kids and their grandkids that, Hey, I'm making a difference via these things. And I'm willing to sacrifice perhaps a little bit on this side to say, uh, we're moving forward in this area of the world. Aster is is the largest provider network um, uh, in, in the areas that we are today. And I think with digital, we can grow uh, tremendously faster. And we're seeing some of that now. But there's a lot of heavy heavy lifting to do. Uh, and, and a lot of things that digital can bring. And a lot of things we just have to change and uh, help us to, uh, to make it better where we are. A lot of lessons we learned from America and India and all the other parts of the world.
0: It's awesome. Are your kids putting down roots in the UAE or is it a stopover?
1: Uh, For them, it is a stopover. Part of it's because it's, that's a difficult part. I think the kids who have been in the UAE and then have since left and have gone on to college and get married elsewhere, some of them would really like to come back for some period of time, but coming to a place to put down roots, as it were, to be here for a long period of time. I I don't know yet. We'll see. They all talk about wanting to come back and spend time here either with their spouse or 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 with a job and perhaps with us. Uh, But we'll see where that goes. But I'll tell you, they they go back to the states um, rather mature, right, Mm -hmm. more mature than they may have been otherwise with experiences that they have to get caught up with their fellow uh, Americans about who are their same age but have never you know, been able to serve in that. One of the great things about living on this side of the world, not all, you know, pre-pandemic is Dubai is the most traveled airport in the world. And therefore there's lots of great competition for air flights. And we have an opportunity as a family to go many, many places that we had never been before. And instead of coming back each summer, many, many expatriates when you live in another country will go back to your home country for the summer, right? Spend the rest of the summer there and come back. And I think that's fine. And that's great. You get a chance to reconnect. Uh, but not knowing how long you're really going to spend there, we chose to spend our summers living in other places, uh, because we just wanted the opportunity to do that. So we, we lived for a full summer, a couple of months in England and kind of got reconnected with where the name Roberry comes from, uh, and toured all over Wales and Ireland and Scotland. And, and that place we got to live for a summer in Madagascar. Wow. Uh, my son, who my son served his mission in Madagascar. Right. So, uh, we, uh, we spent two months there working at some schools, giving back service and helping the kids understand that that's how, and we learn about Madagascar, that's how real life is for many, many people in this world still. And so if you think it's just uh, how we live, et cetera, so that that experience over that period of time has been really good. And uh, we, we take uh, those memories and those friendships forward. And we look forward, if we're able to do that some more, and again, right now, um, that's a difficult thing to do. Uh, but we still enjoy connecting with, uh, with so many different people.
0: What an exciting life and what a beautiful blessing for you and your children to see so many of God's children.
1: Oh, and the kids get to, they they become friends with so many people who come from so many different backgrounds from them. You know, my daughters, their sons will come home with, we, we proverbial call them the, the United Nations of friends, right? she comes home and her best friends from India and Pakistan, and there might be an Australian in there, a Filipino, et cetera. And they just walk in and our home becomes this kind of sort of crossroads of the world. And what a, what a, what a, you know, where could I give my family that experience? Right.
0: That's absolutely beautiful. This has been so fascinating. And what a fascinating life. Uh, I, I uh, just think that where you've been and the, the path you've led, has just been absolutely amazing. I appreciate you sharing that with us all. We're going to wrap things up with the question we ask all of our guests, and that is, uh, what does being a member of the church mean to you?
1: Well, Sean, being a member of the church, uh, for me, it means that I'm, you know, I get to be grounded in these eternal principles, regardless of circumstance. Uh, and the regardless of circumstance really hits you when you're a place like Dubai or the other places that we get to go. Um, it means <clears throat> it also means that I get a, a, a an upfront row seat to to changes um, man didn't know this is gonna be art um, an upfront uh, seat to, to changes in people's lives that impact not just them right <clears throat> impact uh, generations of people and so you see people come in uh, and they come in, in, you know, worker street clothes, um, and they start learning. And then over months, period of time, their entire, their entire life, their countenance, the way they are, the way they dress, um, their families begin to change quick. <clears throat> My daughter, uh, serves as served as a missionary on temple square. And uh, there was a, a brother um, from Africa who, who decided to embrace the gospel here in, it was in Abu Dhabi at the time. And he was so excited about it. Of course, he wanted his family back home because most of these people don't have their families here. They can't afford it. And so my daughter got to teach his family online in Nigeria from Salt Lake. And then uh, this good brother comes into my office. I was serving as the as the, as the bishop at the time, just over the moon. Shows me the picture of uh, <clears throat> of his family all in white, you know, getting baptized. He didn't even get to be there because of the circumstances of his li- of uh, his work and his life. But having uh, <clears throat> sorry, anyway, uh, having that kind of connection. Uh, across the world, is uh, pretty tremendous. Anyway, I I get to, uh, I can do and be my best in all the other areas of my life because I don't have to worry about who I am. I already know.
0: Hmm. He is a husband, a father, a global business leader, and a pretty darn amazing son of God, Brandon Roberry. Thank you for sharing your Latter-day life with us. We appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having me, Sean. It's been great to be here.
0: And my special thanks to my guest, Brandon Roberry. It was so wonderful sitting down and talking to him, and I was so just touched by his spirit and, and what an amazing man he is. I love the work that he's doing uh, on the other side of the world from us. Thank you so much, Brandon. This week in my Latter day Life, listening back to the episode where uh, Brandon was talking about his travels, it got me to thinking just how blessed I've been in my own travels. Uh, I've gotten to see many parts of the world. And quite often I meet people, and when you start talking, we say, Where are you from? That's just such a basic uh, question that you ask people. And one of the gifts of travel is when I have been somewhere that someone is from, uh, or if I've visited there, it immediately creates a bond that's very different. Uh, Yesterday, I was actually out at a steak cooking competition out in St. George, Utah. And there was a guy I had only recently met. I'd only met him once before, but we hadn't really talked. And we had some downtime. And during that downtime yesterday, we got to chatting. And I said, so tell me, tell me where you're from. And he said, "Oh, I'm from San Jose, California. And I said, you got to be kidding. I'm from San Jose. Well, it turns out That he had grown up in another state, uh, but he and his wife moved to Santa Clara, San Jose area, just about three years ago. And of course, I left San Jose 25 years ago. But even though he just got there and I left there so long ago, we spent about 10 minutes talking about San Jose and where his kids went to high school and where I went to high school and all these things. And there was this immediate bond over San Jose. And it happens, I mean, San Jose is not that far away from where we were. You know, he had flown in for the competition. But I meet people sometimes from China or I'll meet people from Mexico. And once I tell them, hey, I've been to your city, it just breaks down these walls that that I maybe understand them in a different way. And there have been times when I've been overseas or on the East Coast or whatever, and I'll talk to somebody and uh, say, yeah, I live in Utah. And they'll go, Utah. I've been to Utah. I love Utah. And I get excited. Where have you been? And it just opens up conversation, getting to know people based on where they're from, where their roots are. I mean, we all have that love for uh, where we live. Not all of us love where we're from exactly, but we love parts of it at the very least. And we're proud of it. And we want people to know about it. And so connecting through travel is just an awesome, awesome blessing in my life. It's been one of the difficult things with the pandemic as we've all been traveling a little bit less, and I'm so grateful that things are opening up. And for those of us who are able to, whether it's hopping into a car and uh, just going to another city near where we live and getting to know that area or getting on an airplane or whatever it is, getting out and seeing the world, boy, what a connection it brings to other people. And what a blessing it is to see how other people live and to get to know other areas. And to be able to bring that back to our own homes, I think is just incredible. I'm so grateful for it. And that's what's happening this week in my latter day life. Thank you so much for tuning in. We really appreciate it. If you enjoy the show, boy, do we appreciate those five-star reviews. They really help us to be found, especially on Apple Podcasts. If you know someone who'd make a great guest, you can email guest at latterdaylives.com and uh, give us any suggestions. We love finding new guests. The Latterday Lives podcast was produced by Gene Chittister. Social media by Skylar Fleming. I've been your host, Sean Rapier, and I think that's all we got for you this week. So until we meet again, there is a great big beautiful world out there. Go be in it. Just not of it. Thanks for listening.